tonight on Arena. Poet Gerald Daw on his latest collection, Another Time, and Irish musician Richie Egan, a.k.a. Jip, on his new album, Endless Thread. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Jip is an Irish electronic band centering around songwriter and lead singer Richie Egan. Richard Egan, I suppose I should call you for the sake of your mother at least once, Richie. <laughs> Richie, of course, founded Jip as a side project over 20 years ago when he was part of a collective called the Redneck Manifesto. Jip went on to win the Choice Music Prize for Best Album in 2009 and again in 2012, the first artist to win the prize twice tomorrow. Jip will release album number six in this illustrious career. It's called Endless Thread and delighted to have Richie Egan with me in the studio this evening ahead, ahead of the release. Endless Thread has a kind of a, a kind of a weary sound to it in some ways, Richie. And there's a kind of a, a weavy sound to it as well, if I can say both of those things are present. Yeah, uh, well, it's the title track on the record mm. and it kind of came from the idea of just being, I always think of an artist as a kind of a link on a chain. And I think that, like, you know, you're either further forward in the chain or further back. And uh, I feel like the thread of art just continues. And when you get when you're making it long enough, like I am, you start to question where you are in the thread. And yeah, it just kind of came from that. Also, in, in the endless thread of constantly scrolling the Internet, which I think <laughs> everybody sort of does now. And I think the influence of that on artists is is a thing too, you know. Yeah, if, 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 uh, how much of a question in your head is there around what kind of influence that kind that kind of endless thread is? I mean, it's it's this kind of culture of distraction that we live in, but uh, it's difficult to focus on things for long periods of mm. time. And but I think that that informs the music we listen to now. Like if you listen to stuff, it's quite a lot of stuff is quite disjointed and very fast and hooky. And yeah, I mean. It's just an interesting concept to think about and it seemed like a good idea to tie an album onto that. Idea. Because, you know, there's often that conversation is had around the idea of the short and the hooky. So you get in inverted commas an album with 25 tracks on it. The idea being, well, they'll download a half yeah. a dozen of these if I'm lucky yeah. and that's the way I'll make Throw it. Throw the socks at the wall and one of the socks might stick. Kind of yeah. Thing. yeah. Does, does it, does, has it led in some ways to, you know, what, what you might have done in the past where you just you have those 25 songs and you'd say no I have to wade through this myself and I have to choose the 9 or 10 that really Yeah I work. think I'm, I'm a little bit old fashioned like that I tend to write many songs that mm. don't make it onto the record and kind of I like the idea I like the idea of problem solving I mean I like the idea of actually having things to solve yeah. so it takes me a long time to do stuff but it, it just feels right to do it that way for me you know I wish I could lash, lash, lash everything out because it would definitely be more prolific. Yeah, but also you'd be annoyed at yourself for lashing yeah. the stuff out you, that you didn't want out there. You can't. I think you kind of know when you when you haven't done your best, you know, and mm. that's that's a bad feeling. And sometimes if you leave the song sitting there, you'll get a much better song in whatever you know, eighteen months or yeah, two years. Yeah, exactly. Time. If you feel, if you kind of come leave something and come back to it, oftentimes you can really yeah. see the, the wood from the trees. Then this is a, a kind of a. I think the last time you were in, it was ahead of COVID. Um, yeah. The last album. This is the the, the post COVID album, and I yeah. suppose the first song that I'm going to play, Heal These Wounds. It's addressing that period and and the odd four years that we've been through in the last four years. Yeah, like a, a, time. a lot of the songs on the album I would describe as quite upbeat songs. And I think that I really became aware of the healing power of music during the whole COVID kind of thing. And uh, it, it it felt like I wanted to make something that like would actually feel healing when I was singing it as well as maybe 
would offer some healing to people listening to it as well for this particular song. Yeah, and I see it's the opening track yeah. on the album. Let's have a listen. Heal These Wounds. opening track on the new album from J.P. Richie Egan uh, Endless Thread the title of the album I was saying to you as we were listening to that one, one of the things that really struck me about that song which opens the album because the, the COVID that whole period has, has led to some creations that are actually you know quite introspective and quite downbeat and you know can kind of pull you back to a, a pretty nasty place but clearly music kept your mood buoyant during that period yeah I mean I think we all went through da- went through dark mm, times during mm. that time but like then I, I really had to focus on why I make music and the joy of actually creating music you know and so like I started to write upbeat songs for the first time in years and uh it was very, it felt good. I was writing music for cartoons at the time a bit as well. So I like was in that sort of frame of mind of happy creation music. And I've got kids as well. So like it was kind of like a mixture of all of those things. Uh, and and I, am I right in thinking that for a change, and I think that maybe it's a first, you wrote at the piano this time? Yeah, I, I, I actually like that was, I liked to set parameters before the album. And one of the ones I set was to try and write as many of the songs at the piano. And just in terms of coming up with melodies, I mean, when I usually write on a guitar, mm, I used to, mm. and you've got muscle memory and your hands fall into certain patterns. But yeah, yeah. at the piano, I mean, I just really tried to practice as much as possible and get the two hand things going. And just, I found that melodies were, the melodies were much, just much broader, you know, and much more um, fun to work on on the piano. I really, really enjoy working on the piano. Oh, now, but that's so. interesting too, that you set that parameter down for yourself before you said, right, I'm going to get stuck into a new album. So yeah. you, you kind of, you set yourself the challenge. I think, I think I read an interview with PJ Harvey a few years ago and she said she does stuff like that and it makes a lot of sense because if you're a solo artist you can just faff around with many different, you can go all different avenues whereas if you just give yourself certain parameters per record uh, you can kind of work within them. I think limitation is oftentimes very good for creativity because if you have unlimited choices, you don't know what to do. But if yeah. you have just a small amount. You and the muscle memory that you mentioned, I can see how that would happen. You'd be, you'd be playing a chord on, a, on the guitar and without you even knowing it, yeah. you'd be slipping yeah. into something. And you think, it's exactly oh, yeah, that's that. my sound and that'll work. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just go with that. It's exa- Every time I sit at the guitar, I play the same three chords in a row, like <laughs> every single time. So I was just had to get away from that, yeah. And, and and how how prof, how proficient a pianist were you before you sat down like, and to do the bit of practice? It's been great. I got a piano. It was eighty quid. I got a piano for, and it's the best eighty quid I ever spent in my life. It was actually like, and this is at home up in yeah, in Malmo in Sweden. Yeah. yeah, it cost like nearly two hundred quid to get it tuned, but it was eighty <laughs> quid to buy, and it was a. It's just amazing. It's just a beautiful upright old piano, and it sounds great. And I just like just sit at it most of the time. And are you, are you practicing on a daily I'm practicing basis all now? the time. You're trying to learn standards and I'm not I'm not good, but I'm I can I'm I can write songs at it like yeah. you know, so we'll be doing your grade four or five now before we know it, Richie, yeah, will This you? is it, I'll be back to school, yeah. Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> <laughs> style. Um there's a lovely song. I have to say this I I, I listened to this song over and over, <laughs> you oh, know, great. when I got yeah. the album first, which is a, a song called In Our Home. Yeah. I and like that and one too, this right? it's it's pure joy. Now, I'm sure you'll tell me it's not 
totally autobiographical, but it has a large autobiographical strain in it, it feels to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a very upbeat song and I like. I really like it too. And it was one of those ones when I wrote it, I was like, this is way too cheesy, I can't do it. <laughs> but then I just wanted to give it just a little twist and I think that just the idea of in our home is it more as a universal thing, you know. Mm. And I think that we should all just be, I know this is going to sound a little cheesy, just be kinder to each other and just welcome each other in as much more. And so, yeah, that's where this one comes from. Richie Egan from Jib and that from the new album Endless Thread it really is such an upbeat song yeah. uh, Richie but when when you start listening into it it is you, you start you, you're, you're mentioning there about uh, yeah we're really all the same yeah we have our differences mm. very much like a family but you are thinking bigger than just you your yeah. wife and your kids yeah I mean definitely I love songs that like have one meaning on the surface and then you can you can dig into them mm. a little bit I love that with lyrics you know uh, you spoke recently about, um, you know, the whole, again, the mentioning the unmentionable post-COVID, but I, I suppose the thing now is you can actually get out and tour this album and I guess that's that must be a big joy. Yeah, like, Back out gigging again. Oh, uh, you know, like this week I said to the record label, like I really want to do like in-stores in all different mm. places. I was down in Kinsale the other day in Galway and we're in Kilkenny on tours today and we've got Terror tomorrow. I just want to get out and meet people again and just have the joy of talking, to playing a tune, meet, shaking someone's hand, having a chat with them, you know, after the gig. It's like, yeah, I really miss that, like, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned Tower tomorrow. You're in Tower Records in Dawson Street in Dublin, 6.30pm. Yeah, 6 And a few live shows then after that, have Yeah, we've, we, yeah, finish off the in-stores this week and then we're doing live stores with the 20th uh, in Button Factory of October, uh, 21st in Whelan's and then the second tour at Fort and 5th were around in Cork, Galway, Limerick. Yeah. Oh, I see. You're all over. You're um, all over the country. Um, the the Barras and Clonakilty yeah. as well. So. And what kind of band have you got for that? Uh, for we've got a big band for the Dublin shows, and then we've got a smaller band for the um, the the country gigs. But I've got these amazing things called Polly and Perks that play the drums for me. They're like robots, so we have actual live drums, but they're play. It's played by um, these machines, basically. So it's very yeah, artificial it's, intelligence being put yeah. to good use. Yeah, big well, maybe <laughs> the drummers wouldn't say that though. They're not a replacement <laughs> for drummers, by the way. Yeah, drummers, well, well saved, well saved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's finish up with it's the current lashing through the minutes is, is the current single. Uh, it's, it's one of them. It's kind of one of those albums that you don't really know which is the which single. Is which is Yeah, you just like lashing out loads of songs. But the, and there's a touch in this song again. It sounds like you know, ah, yeah, let's just get on with things. But in fact, it's maybe there's a little bit of a warning. Don't be lashing through the minutes. Enjoy the minutes. Yeah, big time. I think one of the, the kind of key ideas with this one was when you look at a photograph of yourself from 20 years ago and you basically say, I was actually, I looked, you know, everything was okay then, but I wasn't exactly happy then. Yeah, yeah. And then now, but I was trying to like get in part, feel like that's now, you know, that is now. So just don't remember, don't forget that. You yeah, know? don't don't forget. Live through the minutes. Don't be yeah. throwing them away. Thanks but for having me on. Not at all. Great to see you, Richie, as, as always. And let's finish up by listening to Lashing Through the Minutes. Still there. 
Flashing through the minutes, the title of that track from Jip and the new album, Endless Thread. Uh, Richie Egan, great to have him in studio. He's embarking on that series of gigs around Ireland from Friday, October the 20th, uh, Button Factory in Dublin. Full information on his uh, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash we are Jip. Two years ago, I spoke to poet Gerald Daw about the third and final instalment of his memoir, A City Imagined Belfast Soulscapes. Now he's back with another time, a volume of new and selected poems. So it is both his 10th new poetry collection and work from nine earlier collections, from his first book, Sheltering Places, in 1978, right through to The Last Peacock from 2019. Gerald is also the author of four essay collections, editor of several anthologies of poetry and literary criticism, and delighted that he's with me in studio this evening. Another Time is such an, an evocative title um, for the collection here, Jerry. Yeah, it comes from the uh, title sequence, uh, Another Time. Uh, which is a kind of, um, well, without sounding too sombre about it, it's a sort of meditation on how life moves on and passes you. Uh, And um, uh, when I was writing that poem, I could hear a voice, and it wasn't mine, Mm. and the voice was going, oh, that was another time. It's the way in which we kind of, you know, if we're talking about something and we're trying to remember and then you say to yourself or to whoever yeah. you're talking to, no, that was another time. Yeah, that's a different story that's you're a thinking of. Yeah. You have it in one. And so I thought, hmm, I like that little amb- ambivalence and ambiguity. So that became the title of the poem. It's a, a short little sequence of, uh, of poems. And then when I was putting together the suite of poems, the new poems, I realised that that had to be the title and then when we were talking with Gallery uh, about what the title would be for the book, there was only one title. Only one title, yeah. And another mean, time. And and there are like there are a million and one meanings to another time, you yes. know. And they do it once again, another time. Let's have more. Yeah, you yeah. know, another time. Like uh, that. That's a bygone era. Yes. All sorts of uh, like added layers. There yeah, are layers yeah, in which, the phrase, and th- that's what excites me about language. That there's nothing just a equals a. There's these yeah. other you know layers underneath. Mm. Let's listen to her and maybe I'll get you to read a poem called 1969 because on the surface of us, a poem with the title 1969 is about 1969. Yes, so Let's have a listen. Yeah, yeah. Um, 1969 is dedicated to uh, my some of my, my two oldest friends now. I'm sure they won't be pleased about me saying that, but uh, we've, been, we've been pals since 1969 and earlier, actually. 1969 for Ellison and Joe Craig. In the colour photograph, the family group is heading into town in their Sunday best. Behind their steady walk, a soldier stares our way and two lads look at the rubble and ruin. Was it a furniture shop or the local bar? It's hard to tell. But the colour snap has remained intact since the long-lost summer of 1969. How strange is that? Sunshine and a burnt-out shop, all the folks getting by, the soldier, the family circle. Was there something else just out of shot? Life goes on amidst all the ruin. The photographers snapped this on such a perfect day. What then? What then? 
That's Gerald Dahl reading his poem, 1969, the very first poem, in fact, in the new collection, the new book, Another Time. Uh, and and that was a, a, a photograph that you were looking at, yes, Gerry, indeed. of 1969. And if we think of the history of Northern Ireland, you're a Belfast man. If we think of the history of the, of that moment in time in Northern Ireland. It's a, a absolutely fantastic photograph. What drew my attention to it was when I saw it first was that it, it was a colour photograph of the late 1960s and mm. there weren't that many Yeah, that'd be unusual, yeah. It wasn't uh, colourised. It actually was a colour mm. photograph. But I knew the road, the Crumlin Road, where it's set and I asked my friend Ellison, uh, could she put me in any idea of who the, the family was? And we discovered who the family was. It turned out that my friend was a pal of one of theirs. Uh, uh, and... All the kind of networks of uh, those years started to emerge. But what struck me about the photograph, you can see it online, what struck me about the photograph was to see the family moving down through destruction, the ruins of, uh, I think it was the uh, Wheatfield pub in the corner, um, and one or two other items, and the soldier staring blankly at the photographer, who I think... Uh, was a the the, uh, the photograph is from Getty the, mm. their archive, and it was the contrast between the domesticity of the family, dressed up, on their way in uh, to town or maybe to church, and surrounded by this the soldier the British Army soldier, and the destruction of what had been obviously a pub or something uh, uh, and other uh, uh, parts of the street, and that was 1969. You know. We all know what was about to unfold mm. after that. So when I was, this this photograph followed me around in my head for years and years and years and years. And out of the blue, it popped up on one of these kind of online uh, platforms. And it kind of shook me. And I, which is unusual for me, I actually sat down and wrote the poem straight off. Wow. But I, I couldn't get the last two, I couldn't get the poem finished. And then suddenly I could hear in the back of my head, well, you know what happened after that? What then? What then? Mm. And it has a little kind of <clears throat> cheeky reference in the backdrop to Yeats, but we don't need to go there. Yeah, and I suppose the other side of it is, it, it's, I said 1969 is a poem, but 1969, but it's as much about today as it is about 1969. Indeed it is. I mean, we don't have to, you think of what's happening in Ukraine, you think about what's happening in other parts of the world where families are trying to retain some kind of you know, uh, balance mm. and ordinary social family lives, civic lives under bombardment. Yeah. What th What then? What now? What, what next? You know, exactly. you know there's, there's, exactly. there's so much that. And it fits in. It sort of is the mm. key to the book, uh, particularly the part one of the book. It brings up the issue of the relationship between ordinary life and historical yeah. conflict. And the other thing is uh, if, if photographs became quite important, I think, in recent... Uh, wh when did you come across the the archive of your father's, whom you, you oh. hadn't been in touch with him for a long time? No, no. I mean, my father <coughs> and my mother separated back mm. in the 50s, in the mid-50s. I was only a nipper at the time um, uh, in uh, 1956, I think it was. And that marriage uh, broke up and... Uh, my sister and I and uh, live with my mother uh, and indeed my grandmother. So I had no contact with my father for all those years. He died in the mid-2015, uh, somewhere around that. Uh, but uh, when they had been clearing out the house, there was a file of material um, that he had kept, uh, photographs, 
cuttings from newspapers and the like. And that that had gone from the solicitor's office to my sister and my sister ultimately gave it to me, Pamela gave it to me. Mm. So I had this stuff and I sort of left it almost like as if it was, uh, I didn't want to go there. But then I, I thought to be silly, Jerry, open it and see what it is. And there was some, some interesting photographs uh, and, and, and memorabilia. So out of that, um, uh, uh, that out of the, the the gathering of that material, the fact that he had held it uh, in mm. place for 50, 60 years, that sort of sparked the poem uh, called "Only Son," um, and uh, in inside that box, uh, which had become a, a, a kind of an archive box, there was a photograph that he had kept of himself mm. uh, with the sun. Uh, shining on his face and I actually kept that photograph in memory of him. And I must say as as I looked through the and which goes back in time before you ever knew of the existence of that archive yeah. there are so many poems that kind of are like little snapshots in time. There's a relationship I guess between photography and poetry in that respect. Well there certainly is. I think you've hit, <clears throat> you, you hit it on the head. I mean uh, I mean there are different kinds of poems in mm. the book but, and also different kinds of poems in that section in part one. But I have been drawn uh, to photographic, uh, to the, the the photograph, and I love the notion of you know snapshots and that kind yeah. of thing. That it's it's a moment in time. It's a it's a capturing something, um, and if you look, you know, attend to what you're looking at. If you're atten- uh, you know, you, you have a kind of sense of looking at what you're looking at. If you know what I mean. Uh, you can see different things happening, little moments, yeah. little shades, little different bits and pieces. And out of that Shadowland, poems can come. Always fascinating to speak with you and there's never enough time. But maybe you would finish <laughs> by, will you tell me, because I think In Memoria is something, or poems that are in memoria of different people come mm. along, come up several times in the mm. in the collection as well. Maybe you'd introduce Level Crossings for us and finish with that. Surely. Um it's on page thirty-two. If I have it, I have it. Um, it's a uh, it's a poem which kind of compares two different things: our world today and the world that I inhabited back in the seventies uh, and eighties, going back and forward to Ballina, where my wife and her family are from, and uh, often going there at Christmas time. Yeah, and we'd stop if we were on the train. You'd stop at the wonderfully named Manola Junction. That's on the train to Westport. So anyway, uh, my brother-in-law passed away last year and I was thinking about him and the world that he inhabited in Mayo and Ballina and I wrote this poem uh, in tribute to him. It's called Level Crossings, Michael Melvin, 1937, uh, 2022. Dodging between Deliveroo, Just Eat, Amazon Prime. Is it any wonder the cyclist heads against the traffic flow? Or is it really something else entirely that's going on, post-lockdown, in the Putin mire, as the morning sun encompasses our singular undaunted tree, the old stone walls consoling mortar, the curtains billowing out like a cloud? I bet someone's nodding off under the family clock, and before I know it, I'm on my way via Manolid Junction, through Bogland, Sparkling Lake, Gorse, isolated farm, all suddenly lit up, on and on and on, to the terminus of the long ago. Train hoots approaching level crossings, 
the rocking carriage full of folk heading back home. That's Gerald Daw reading his poem Level Crossings which starts in one place and brings us to another time. It's exactly what it does, Jerry, and lovely to hear you read it for us. Another time is of course the collection, the title of the latest collection, Poems nineteen seventy eight to two thousand and three. From Gerald Daw, it's published by Gallery Books. You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. Romantic Imaginations is the telling subtitle of a new book, The Cinema of Powell and Pressburger, about two of the most extraordinary filmmakers working in England in the 1940s and 50s. Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger lived long enough to fall out of fashion for a while, but films like A Matter of Life and Death and The Red Shoes would later influence artists as various as Kate Bush and Martin Scorsese. Claire Smith and Natalie Morris are the editors of The Cinema of Powell and Pressburger. They've read the archives of the British Film Institution and other collections to include stunning visuals in this handsome book. Paul Whittington has been taking a look at it for us and he's with me in studio this evening. You know, when I say Powell and Pressburger, and I think most people will be thinking this too, Paul, you think quintessentially English filmmakers. It's mm. kind of half the story in some ways, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely it is. And in fact, they're <clears throat> they're very, although some of the film subjects like The Life and De- Death of Colonel Bloom, which is very, uh, you know, British Empire, the films themselves are not, they're not in the British realist tradition, which was the strongest tradition. They are, um, they're flights of fancy. They are, you know, they take huge risks mm. in the way they were made. And uh, they're a collaboration between two very different people, two very different artists. And Emmerich Pressburger was a Hungarian Jew who came to Britain in, in the late 1930s for obvious reasons. Um, and he said he left his his key in the door of his apartment in Paris so that the stormtroopers wouldn't have to kick wow. it down. And that gives an idea of the kind of light kind of sensibility. He had this very middle European wry sense of humour. And that was the crucial ingredient that that, that changed the films. It, because even when, when Pressburger arrived, Powell had already established him reasonably himself reasonably well as a filmmaker. He had. He had. He'd been working since he was 20, a bit like Alfred Hitchcock on whose films he worked. He, he worked mm. his way up. He learned the different parts of cinema and he was a very respected director by the time the pair of them were introduced. But when they came together, something uh, very, very different started to happen. So what was the what was the division of labour, if you like, in terms of the the English sensibility of Powell and that mm. European sensibility of Pressburger? Well, um, um, Powell was the the director, the you know the the, the film person. Um, he 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 dealt with the actors. He he was a driving force in the production. Uh, Pressburger, who wrote very very fast, sometimes he sometimes wrote screenplays mm. in about ten days, even though English would not have been his, his first language. He was the words person, but he was always on set. Powell is very keen, was always very keen to stress this because after uh, it, it, in, it, some British film historians kind of said, you know, Powell and your man kind of thing. But yeah. he 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 wrote. He also. Um, edited after each film was done, uh, Powell would take off to Scotland to walk in the Highlands to recover, and Pressburger would, would do the editing. He was always on set. They made a lot of crucial decisions together. Their their production company, the Archers, they 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 worked yeah. on together. So they was it was a total collaboration. In fact, Tilda Swinton writes the the introduction. Yeah, lovely introduction. Yeah. She, she actually talks about the Archers, the the nature of these kind of. Mavericks that they were. Yeah, she does, and she got to meet Michael Powell, and I think she felt it was a kind of you know imprimatur for the kind of and one can imagine her in Powell and Pressburger yeah. films. Actually, had she lived at an earlier time, she she had a lovely way of describing them. She said they were pirate souls on the high seas of cinema, and I think that's true because yeah. there's really nobody 
to whom they can properly be yeah. compared. Well, let's go into the specifics, I suppose, of, of some of the films. You mentioned the life and death of, of mm. Colonel Blimp. Um, what are we talking about there? Because Colonel Blimp sounds like some kind of comic book character. Yeah, uh, he English is. comic he, book character. He, he is. He was based on a comic strip and <clears throat> it was kind of an affectionate send-up of Empire. Winston Churchill was not amused by the film. He wanted it banned because it was not patriotic. But it was actually much more, it was kind of the best side of Britishness as opposed to the mm. kind of pompous, full of yourself type that we're, so we, you know, we're, we're kind of used to. Um, Roger Livesey, who was a great actor who people will know from Matter of Life and Death, his wonderful sort of rasping voice, he played this character, uh, Colonel Blimp, who's this, you know, his, his name describes him like he's a very large, rotund, red-faced, uh, bald gentleman mm-hmm. and he's disturbed, disturbed at his club by a military exercise and he starts to remember his life in the Empire. He still feels that wars ought to be fought like a cricket match, but of course the, the, the Nazis don't quite see, see it that way. So it's really a kind of a send-up of of the empire, but an affectionate one. Well, you, you get the kind of middle European surreality, I suppose, yeah. coming into that way of treating the war, but it really comes to, into its own in uh, the, the film after that, A Matter of Life, uh, yeah. uh, which had David Niven in it. And again, we're in wartime Britain, aren't we? Or mm. wartime somewhere. We are in wartime Britain and it wouldn't have had David Niven in it if David Niven hadn't come back to the UK to serve in the war in the RAF. Mm. And he plays a pilot in it and his plane is going down and he's talking to uh, this uh, a female radio operator on the ground and it looks bad and there's no, his bomber's going down, there's no way he could survive, but he does survive. And in heaven, this causes a disturbance. Heaven is a very kind of, um, uh, uh, sort of a very British heaven. It's very, you know, uh, carefully organised, lots of clerks and everything. And they wonder why he's not there and they send down an emissary right. to, to, to find him. Well, let's listen to a clip from, from A Matter of Life and Death. David Niven, as Peter Carter, wakes up on a bench, having fallen to what he thought was his death, as you've explained to us, Paul. And he meets Marius Goring as Conductor 71, who explains what is going on. Who are you? We should have met yesterday at O4 Wano, mon cher. Unfortunately, I missed you. Well, you couldn't have missed me because I wasn't here. Now, who the... I bring you a message from Mr. Trubshaw. Bob? Bob's dead. Oh, yes, he's dead. He says, what ho? Well, that sounds like Trubshaw. But he is dead, isn't he? En effet. But how? Cannon shell. And what should happen to a man who jumps from his aircraft? without his parachute? How do you know? But it is I who am telling you, my friend. Your time was up. But they missed you because of your ridiculous English climate. But what do you want now? You, my friend. What for? To conduct you to the training center. Training for what? For another world. You don't mean... But, my dear friend, that is just what I do mean. That's uh, Marius Goring there as Conductor 71. David Niven as Peter Carter in a scene from A Matter of Life and Death, one of the Pyle and Pressburger films. Um, Paul Whittington with me in studio this evening talking about a new book about the cinema of Powell and Pressburger, which has just been released. You, you get a sense of, you, you were talking, Paul, about Winston Churchill being annoyed about the life and death of Colonel Blimp. How did these kind of, you know, they weren't exactly glorifying war, which many of the films of that period were. No, they weren't. I mean, this one didn't get into to, to too much trouble, to be honest, because I don't, it wasn't taken that seriously. It wasn't a direct, uh, a fr- full frontal assault mm. on the British Empire. But it, it, what's interesting is you, you get Marius Goring and it was the, the little coterie of company players. Anton Walbrook was another. But these were mainstream films. And yet 
you look in that book. There's a beautiful illustration of the staircase to heaven. That that, oh, yeah. Uh, that yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are so out there in terms of their imagination and what they're trying to do. You get these moments in that film where uh, the characters stop. Uh, are frozen and uh, w- one of them, David Niven, is walking around because he's not mm. quite alive. They are so imaginative and yet people flock to see them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at that image, I think, of the staircase making its way up to mm. heaven from, from the book and the the, the, the illustrations are, are extraordinary. There are yeah. other pictures in here as well. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I turn the page and I get to Deborah Kerr, <laughs> which yes. leads us nicely yeah. into, yeah. into uh, Black, Black Narcissus. Narcissus. Was yeah. that, that was the next one after that. Yeah, effectively, it came a, a year after uh, A Matter of Life and Death and before 1947 the yeah, yeah, yeah. before no, the Red Shoes Black Narcissus which I actually saw a couple of these films are shown on film four the odd time mm. uh, at least they were up to last year and Black Narcissus I mean it's um, it sort of reminds you of sort of Douglas Cirque or something you know it's very heavy colours and sort of it, it is a melodrama mm. And she is, she is the poor sister in this in this um, uh, yeah, uh, convent. I think it's probably an Anglican convent. In I'm going to guess, yeah. not Catholic. In the in in the, in the Himalayas, who's trying to suppress the rising passions of the of, of the novice nuns. But Sister Ruth, in particular, Sister Ruth is 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 a, is a case, all right. But the the it is a beautiful looking film and. Yes, it's melodramatic, but when you watch it, it's entirely possible to take it seriously. Yeah, and and you can hear a sense of that melodrama in this in this clip. Deborah Kerr as Clodagh, sister superior of this uh, superior rather of this Anglican mission, as you mentioned. She's warning Sister Ruth here, played by Kathleen Byron, about her worrying obsession with the Mister Dean, played by David Farrar. Listen to me. I don't know. I can't decide now what to make of you. I shall have to think, and I want you to think too. As for Mr. Dean, in spite of his charm and kindliness, he is not a good man. You must take him for what he is and not try to glorify him into something he is not. When he came to chapel on Christmas night, he was drunk. Can I go? I want you to write to Reverend Mother. I shan't look at the letter and her reply will be your own business. Am I to write two or three pages? Would you rather I did it now or shall I finish my classwork first? You may go. The music says it all, the doesn't music it? music and, and the cut glass accents, yeah. class work. Yeah, but, Black but, Narcissus, 1947, yeah. Deborah Kerr and Kathleen Byron in that clip from the Powell and Pressburger film. But the, the, really, the big three came one after the other. A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus that we've just heard of. But the red shoes yeah. really, to me, feels like the epitome, the, the top of their, the, them at the top of their game, Powell and Pressburger. It's, it, it's, it's certainly uh, the most loved and it's the one that mm. got him into trouble, I think, later, Michael Powell, when he made, when he made a, um, a, a slasher film called Peeping Tom that people really didn't like because the maker of the red shoes had made it. It was very beloved. And mm. I think that, Again, there was great. Firstly, telling this this kind of it's very old story of a Svengali and a and a and a, and a, and a ballet dancer, but they wanted a ballet dancer, not an actor, which was, uh, which was again a big risk, and they got Maura Shearer, and it turned out that that she could act and she could perform and she filled the screen, and it's just a marvelous. It's I think it's one of Martin Scorsese's favorite films, and it's a film that these films started to get shown on American television mm. at a time when they were forgotten, as you mentioned at the start. 
and uh, it's just it's just a visual flight of fancy. Yeah, but you, you, you mentioned that the Red Shoes was such a big success and mm. so so beloved, but they they fell out of favour. You mentioned a film there called Peeping Tom. Yeah, which even in its title, you can see maybe why this would have offended many people. That in, was in, post. Uh, that was post Pressburger. They had they had a very they remained friends all their lives. They did very mm. amicable. I think basically people felt that they had gone out of fashion. They made other fantastic films, like I Know Where I'm Going, which is a beautiful film about a woman on on. On the uh, it's going up to Highlands, the Highlands to marry a laird, and you know fate has other plans. Beautiful, yeah. The movement in that film, but basically, um, Michael Powell was 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 a serious director. He, he they started doing things separately. They didn't really work out for them for either of them. Michael Powell made the film called Peeping Tom, which was released the same year as Psycho. Um, and while Psycho, which is no more or less creepy than it mm. did, did what it did because it was released in America, Peeping Tom was absolutely lambasted by critics, perhaps because it was in colour, which made it sort of more lurid seeming. And it was the story of this um, so, so photographer yeah. who kills women with a tripod. And the reason it, it, it was not acceptable was because the, the, the red shoes guy had made it. Yeah, absolutely. And this book that we've, that we've got uh, really gives lovely visuals and is, it's well worth getting if you're a fan of Pilot Press. Where we're talking it, 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 it is, and I would earn, urge anybody who hasn't seen any of their big films like A Matter of go Life see. and Death to go and see them. And Paul Whittington speaking to us there about the cinema of Powell and Pressburger Romantic Imaginations, which is published by the British Film Institute. And to finish up this evening, the cult classic Channel 4 sitcom Peep Show premiered 20 years ago. We were introduced to flatmates Mark, played by David Mitchell, and Jez, played by Robert Webb, and their cringe-inducingly awful antics. Peep Show not only left an indelible mark on the comedy landscape, but also served as a springboard for none other than Oscar winner and member of every British cast in the last 25 years, Olivia Coleman. In addition to the enduring impact of Peep Show, its co-creator Jesse Armstrong went on to create Succession, a show that has garnered much critical acclaim. Dave Hanratty has been taking a look back at, at, at Peep Show and he's with me in studio this evening. Channel 4 2003 was when we saw it on the screens. What was the, what was the genesis or the em- embryonic stage of that particular uh, television series, yeah, Dave? It was a it was a bunch of creative types, comedy types trying to get a show made. Essentially, like they they chopped it around to different places. The Andrew O'Connor, who's one of the co-creators, had pitched to Channel Four at this kind of live action Beavis and Butthead, which mm. people of a certain vintage may remember from MTV. That was an animated series in which two guys sat on a couch and watched music videos and talked over them. That concept will never take off, of course. <laughs> um, but Channel Four didn't like that concept too much back then. They wanted it to kind of be broadened out and focus on the inner lives of the two protagonists. The two protagonists played, of course, by David. Mitchell and Robert Webb, who've been friends since college. They met in the mid-90s, worked on a comedy project as far back as 95, which was a, a college play. It was a sideways glance at World War One, which did not age mm. well, in their opinion. But eventually, they would strike gold. And and they were, like, they weren't, their household names now, they certainly weren't that back then. But how, how did they sell it? What made them buy it? Um, the script quality was immediately noticed. And did they have a style of presenting the script that was also noticed? I think they got very lucky in the sense that you had the kind of writers and initially the two actors that I mentioned there, the leads Mm. of the show, were brought in potentially as writers. They weren't necessarily going to be the stars, but they, Sam Bain, who's one of the co-creators as well, realised very quickly that, oh, no, no, these guys can act. These guys can do everything. And for them, it was more a case of, well, we finally met script writers who actually can give us the material that we need. In terms of the premise, yeah, um, Peep Show has a unique kind of look to it in that it doesn't look amazing. Like That's kind of the point. It has this point of view, up-close camera, very unflattering angles and people. It looks like it's shot on handheld, you know, kind of DV cameras and the Mm. budget wasn't there 
there either. They weren't given a lot of money to make this show. And it's all about the internal monologue of these characters as well. So that's the kind of unique selling point. There's a great quote from the <coughs> commissioning editor who said that he said, that, I thought these were the best scripts I'd ever read. Yeah. And I thought the only way that we can screw this up is if we shoot it weird. And of course, uh, next exactly production meeting, let's have a listen to a clip uh, which features David Mitchell as Mark and Olivia aforementioned Olivia Coleman here playing Sophie. Um, he's, he's doing a sponsored bungee jump but Mark is chickening out uh, and gets too hungry to jump. And you have this internal monologue going on as he speaks here as well. Sponsored Bungie. Three days to organise, a lifetime to look back on from our cottage in Dorset. Alan's going to be so pleased with us. You all right, Mark? Feel a bit safer strapped together. Oh, yeah, yeah. And sorry about the big panic. So glad she bought it. Ooh, I'm so scared. <laughs> I feel much better doing a tandem jump. God, this is great. I think I actually prefer this to sex. No responsibility. I'm strapped on. If I get a bonk on, I'll say it's a buckle. Probably be too much to think about anyway, what with the, the falling towards the ground with only a massive rubber band between me and... What the fuck am I doing? All my normal, sensible cowardice has got overridden by stupid love. Oh, God. You all right, Mark? Yes. No, I don't know. What's the matter? I think I'm actually very hungry. How about, should we not jump and just have lunch? What? I'm genuinely really, really hungry. Too hungry to jump. You're up, guys. You're on. Look, Mark, just uh, relax and I'll be with you all the way. No, I, I don't want to go. I need a sandwich. Well, it looks like we got ourselves a Humpty. Mark, it's too late to back out now, so just try and stay calm. Come on, Humpty. All you got to do here is cling on to your girlfriend. I'm not his girlfriend. Stop calling me Humpty. Look, come on, Mark. No, no, no. I'm hungry. All, all right, I'm, I'm too bloody hungry Look, Mark, to jump. I'm too bloody hungry to jump. Oh, I'm, I'm starving. It's not fair. It's not fair. You can't make a hungry man jump. <laughs> hungry men have to jump sometimes, David Mitchell, as Mark there, Olivia Coleman as Sophie Trademark. I mean, you can hear the Olivia Coleman that we all know and love now, very much present in that uh, scene from Peep Show. Apologies, I should have warned you about the bit of language in the, in the middle of it all. Dave Hanratty looking back at how many years are we talking about? Uh, 20 years of Peep Show. How has the comedy aged? I mean, the internal monologue, that stuff really works well and particularly visually you see it better. But how has the comedy aged? That one's tame enough. There are other ones that aren't quite that tame. Yeah, it's a razor sharp show. And like I went back and I watched the first series there over the weekend and I was surprised at how quickly I went through it. And I was surprised at kind of how well it had aged in one sense. Um, look, I think if you look back on any comedy from the early 2000s, mm. as a new generation will do now, we had it with Friends when it hit Netflix. People were like, what is this? People will be put off by some of the humour. But I think that this show inherently tapped into the problem with men. Like this is the point of the show. You got the two sides of the male aid between Mark and Jeremy. You got like this delusions of grandeur and this wild insecurity. And they say some things that are, of course, a bit uncouth mm. but men do that and like I, I don't think it, you should censor that idea but didn't didn't Netflix take an episode down at one point along the way? Yeah, you could maybe censor this idea, perhaps. Yeah. There was an episode in season two where the character of Jeremy dons blackface. But just for the context of it, he's in a situation, an amorous situation with his girlfriend, his kind of free-spirited girlfriend. And, you know, he's saying, why are we doing this? You know, like, she's saying it's the last taboo. You know, the show calls itself out. But I, you know, like I'm a very, very white person. It's not up mm. to me to say whether this was okay or not. But I do think that these characters are often presented as hapless fools. They're often the ones who are making the mistakes. They say inappropriate things because they are the clowns of the show. 
To what extent or how did it affect comedy, television comedy in particular, that came after it, Peep Show? I think it deserves its place in the sun. I mean, I think the impact that it had, especially when you look at, say, Succession, which is not necessarily like a UK mm. sitcom, but Jesse Armstrong, one of the co-creators of this program, had a, like that was his baby. That's his thing. And he said the Peep Show was the most significant thing he's ever done. He said that as recently as last month, which mm. is, you know, you can debate that if you want to. Um, I think it set the tone for a lot of British comedies to be a little bit more edgy, but it should be said as well that this was not an overnight success. This did not attract a massive audience. It got a big one, but not like a huge yeah. Herculean, everyone tuning in on a Friday so it night. it kind of has there. a cult status now rather than the big status at the at the at at the time um nine seasons however you know quit while you're ahead yeah I think they overstayed their welcome and I do think that that writing did get towards a more mean-spirited point to go back in my point earlier on of course racism is not a, a, yeah. a comedic thing in any, in any respects and it's more the fact that these characters tend to find themselves in these luckless situations but as the show I think got towards its conclusion it did feel like they were kind of running out of steam did you say that Jesse Armstrong said this was the best thing he's ever done yeah he said that the, includes succession he said the most significant thing significant I've ever done. Okay. Yeah, so you can See, debate that but I mean like, yeah. like, like, like I think without this you don't get succession well yeah I was going to ask you that do you see within Peep Show the writing that would make Succession the huge success it has been in more recent years I think it's embryonic I, you know looking back at it now I am of course applying watching four seasons of Succession to this show mm. it's a wildly different set of circumstances but this is about delusional men who, in the corridors of power in this case the corridors of a dingy flat who believe that they are the masters of the universe and will inevitably create their own downfall through their inability to be in social situations and get and win the day so if that's the blueprint it's there in some degree but that also might be me trying to reach and trying to tie all these yeah. threads together. And and finally, I'm I'm presuming it's kind of maybe leave out seasons one and two, watch the middle seasons, and don't watch the end seasons if you're going to go back and look at it. Well, I've already started to do that, yeah, and I anticipate that I will parachute out about halfway through because I remember buying the box set back in the day; yeah. it was a heavily discounted price, and I really enjoyed it until I didn't. It, it's a show that will leave you with an uncomfortable feeling, but it's also very very funny at times. All right, that's Dave Hanratty, and thanks for coming into us this evening. Dave Peep Show is available to watch on Netflix and on Channel 4. Choose your seasons carefully is the advice. That is our lot for this uh, Tuesday evening. Uh, Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Gar Duffy was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you right after the news.